Welcome to the Natural Curiosity Project. I'm Steve Shepard. Thank you for spending a few minutes with me. You know, I've always been curious. I don't know why, I just know that I am. I'm a writer and a teacher and a storyteller, and my job is to be curious, to ask questions and to share the answers. This program explores my belief that why, that simple three-letter question, is the most powerful question that any human has ever asked. Every time we ask it, we challenge ignorance and the status quo. This, I believe. Curiosity leads to discovery. Discovery leads to knowledge. Knowledge leads to insight. And insight leads to understanding. Something that, let's face it, seems to be in short supply these days. So thank you for joining me. I hope you enjoy the program. I've been talking and writing and thinking a lot about this idea of the separation of people and nature. The whole idea of wilderness being separate from people, all that, it's just, it's really tough because A, it disrespects the people who have been managing the land for 12,000 to 30,000 years, depending on where you're at. And, you know, it absolves us of the responsibility to continue doing that. Chris Helzer is the director of science for the Nature Conservancy in Nebraska. He spends a lot of his time focused on prairie management and conservation, sharing what he learns with public and private landowners. The idea that we should let nature do its own thing, just it's not, it's not a relevant conversation to have. It continues this idea that wilderness is a place that's separate from people, which makes it scary to a lot of people. And it, it actually reduces the interest in going out into nature. You know, people who don't have a background of exploring nature, they think about wilderness as a dangerous place that people don't belong. And why would you want to go there if you've never had any exposure to that? We just need to come to grips with this idea that people and nature are the same thing. And we have to make choices about what we want nature to look like. And it can be, I mean, it's okay to to make those choices with our best interests in mind, right? I mean, we can say, look, we need this area to produce food. We need these areas to be, you know, a place that we can go escape and enjoy some beauty. That's all fine, but we have to make decisions. Chris is also a compelling author and a gifted nature photographer, and for this episode, I asked him to talk about the prairies that he feels so strongly about, what they are, why they matter, and why we need to develop a better understanding of their role. So Chris, how did you get into this job? Well, I started out joining the Nature Conservancy in 1997, and I came out of grad school really straight into a career, which was pretty fortunate. But I had, during grad school, volunteered with the Nature Conservancy because I had decided by about my sophomore year in college that prairies is what I wanted to do. I wanted to do something in grasslands. It was an underdog ecosystem in Nebraska, which is really interesting since we're a prairie state. And, you know, almost all of Nebraska at one point was grassland and still half of it is today. But there just wasn't really a focus on grassland ecology in the university So some friends and I had gotten together and kind of formed our own curriculum outside of classes and taught ourselves everything we could. And so I had, I had, I had decided that was, that was going to be my thing. The nature conservancy at the time in Nebraska was really one of the few organizations that focused on the diversity side of grasslands, really caring about things other than deer or big animals or birds. So I started out as a land manager and at the age of 24 and a half, I was given 5,000 acres to manage, which I still am shocked that they let me do that. But it was a really phenomenal experience for me because I was given pretty much free reign to try out different ideas and test things. And one of my mentors at the time told me probably the best thing that anybody could tell a young land manager, which is, look, 
grasslands are tough. You can't do anything in one year that's going to completely mess them up or irretrievably degrade them. So experiment, see what happens. If it, if it looks like you hit it too hard with grazing or you burned it at a time where it did something you weren't expecting, you know, give it time to recover and it will, and then try something different. That was incredibly helpful for me and really liberating and it's kind of set the tone, I think, for my land management years of being really experimental and trying to think about new ways to do this. And at the time, especially in the, in the nineties, we were still in a phase where a lot of the, the advice given to landowners was based really on agricultural uh, objectives, right? So getting fairly even use across a large area, if you were grazing the land and wasn't, wasn't thinking about the different kinds of habitats that, that grassland species need within a prairie where you need some areas of short habitat and some areas of tall habitat. So that became one of the things I got really interested in. I got, I did a lot of work with prairie restoration, turning cropland back into high diversity prairie plant communities, trying to figure out how to do that in ways that other people could take on. And eventually I got to the point where I felt like I needed to do more science and more outreach in order to really be effective. And so I was able to kind of keep shifting my job responsibilities in those directions. Eventually, we hired a different land manager that I was able to supervise and advise. And I was doing a lot more demonstration work, hosting field days, you know, starting to write books and eventually wrote a, I wrote a blog now. I was able to use my photography uh, more and more in those efforts and then also do more science and then collect data and analyze what we were doing and then use the communication to, to share all that. My, my current job is I'm the director of science for Nebraska for the Nature Conservancy, but really more than half of my time is spent on outreach and communication. I'm sure that people have an image in their heads of what a prairie looks like. Before we continue, do me a favor and paint a picture for me. So I'm driving across Nebraska, but I've been driving for a while, so I decide to pull over and take a break. I'm surrounded by prairie. What do I see? Well, the first thing is I would get out of the car and I would take a second probably to stand there and, you know, feel the wind in my face because there's always wind in the prairie, which as a photographer can, can get frustrating, but it is, it is what the prairie is about. There's nothing to stop the wind. And then, you know, if it's in the summertime, you're going to hear all kinds of sounds. You're going to hear birds. You're going to hear grasshoppers and katydids and crickets and potentially frogs, depending on where you're at. You're going to hear the, the vegetation rustling on itself in the wind. And then I would immediately start walking out into the prairie because there's sort of two levels, I think, of prairie appreciation. One is when you stand out of the car, the other, the other thing you'll notice is the sky, right? The horizon is just forever. And, and the sky sort of envelops you. And, and there's an emotion that, that comes with that, I think, that can be either positive or negative, depending on where you're coming from. For me, it's exhilarating. For other people, I know it can feel really scary. It's, you're, you feel very exposed because there's nothing to hide behind. But I think the second layer of that is then when you walk out, prairies in a lot of ways are like coral reefs where from a distance, you look out at, at a coral reef, you just see water. You know, if you're on a boat or on the shore, it just looks like a bunch of water. Who cares? But when you sink in, that's when you see the diversity and the beauty. And, the, and prairies are the same way. And so with a prairie, instead of being in a boat or a scuba gear, you just walk out and start looking. And, and a lot of times I, I'll just sit down or kneel down and start looking around me. And as soon as you sort of change your perspective like that, the world opens up 
and there's all this movement and color and noise and all these things that are happening that are really difficult to see from the from the road or from a car which is why i think people see prairies as something you drive through to get to something interesting which is a shame because if you just stop driving and you know walk out and sink in you get a feel for why the people who love prairies love prairies in 1835, Washington Irving wrote a book called A Tour on the Prairies. I found this quote in it. Here, one of the characteristic scenes of the far west broke upon us. An immense extent of grassy, undulating, or as it is termed, rolling country with here and there a clump of trees, dimly seen in the distance like a ship at sea. The landscape deriving sublimity from its vastness and simplicity. To the southwest, on the summit of a hill, was a singular crest of broken rocks resembling a ruined fortress. It reminded me of the ruin of some Moorish castle crowning a height in the midst of a lonely Spanish landscape. Sounds to me like he saw exactly what you just described. So, Chris, that last comment you made about prairies being places that people want to drive through to get to something interesting made me smile. So let's dig a bit deeper. What is a prairie exactly? So a prairie is a place that is dominated by herbaceous vegetation, a lot of grasses, but also a lot of other wildflowers and sedges and other species. There's sort of a fine distinction between a grassland and a savanna, which is basically a grassland with a few trees scattered around. But I think the difference between a grassland and a woodland is that the, you know, savanna, for example, the trees are still scattered enough that the dominant vegetation is prairie-like. It's, it's grasses and other wildflowers that are non-woody. And then it's maintained by disturbances. And I think that's a key point with prairies is that they are kept from moving into a woodland situation in most places because of a combination of fire and drought and to some extent grazing. And the other piece that's really important there is that that is all related to people, or at least a lot of that is related to people. So in my part of the country, in the central Great Plains, prairies really emerged from woodlands after the last ice age because of people and their use of fire, especially to manage the land. So they were trying to manage for hunting opportunities and for foraging opportunities, eventually using fire to either attack their enemies or to protect their own villages, to burn out around their, their sites, to protect themselves from fire and, and being really thoughtful, intentional about using fire. And that use of fire spread grasslands and sort of, you know, thinned out the woodlands and the savannas to the point where huge swaths of the Great Plains became grasslands that probably wouldn't have otherwise. So I think that that's the other piece that's important. So it's, it, they're, they're not flat necessarily, although that's that's something that I see defined. If you do a Google search for prairies, it often says something like flat. It's like, well, it can be flat, but that dominated by non-woody vegetation, regulated by disturbance. In the absence of disturbance, prairies usually become something else. And, and often in, in, in this, my part of the world, they become woodlands or some kind of a forested situ- situation. Your point about the role of people in creating and preserving the prairies, which prevents them from being converted to woodland naturally, is really interesting. And it also sounds like there's something of a balancing act involved in terms of our responsibility to the prairie if we're going to coexist with it. Prairies wouldn't have existed if, if people hadn't been in North America. At least most of the prairie that exists now wouldn't be here because we wouldn't have had enough fire to drive the ecosystem in that direction. 
there are parts of the country where it's dry enough that trees just don't do well. There's enough drought and you know other climatic things that, that keep trees from coming in, but really it is fire that that made prairies in the first place. And there's not enough lightning-induced fire to to do that job. Although that's still something that people argue about, but the evidence seems pretty strong. You start with that and you move into the idea that it wasn't just fire, it was hunting management, it was other foraging and and it was people that were harvesting plants, replanting those species, moving species around the, the country, being intentional in their in their stewardship of the land. And I think the reason that that's important is that that still continues today. We still have humans that are on the landscape that are regulating what's happening, managing the landscape. And I don't think that's a bad thing, although that's something that is is tricky in, in today's discussions, because I think there are people who feel like nature is something that exists most successfully outside of people. If you want nature to do well, get the people out of the way, let nature do its thing, which just isn't the way it works. And that's especially true with grasslands, but I think it's true for most ecosystems. If we absolve ourselves of the responsibility to manage the land, it takes away both our ability and our sort of motivation to do the right thing with, with the land. And I think it also disrespects the people who came before us. And so I, I think it's it's not a question of whether or not we have a responsibility to manage the land. It's it's how we're going to use that responsibility. So that's that's why I think it's important. Whether it's a rancher or a conservation organization managing the land, if we're not there actively doing that, something else is going to happen that's going to be less good for the diverse community of plants and animals that live there. Invasive species become unregulated, trees can come in and take over and change that ecosystem into something completely different. It's just, it's, it's, not a, it's not a system that can be independent if what you mean by independent is separate from people. The prairies, the Great Plains, are one of several pretty dominant ecosystems in North America. What do they provide? Well, I'll start with the idea that prairies are home to an incredible diversity of other species. And I, I think I want to start with that rather than sort of the, the direct benefits to humans, because I think it's, it's really important. And one of the things that I do as a science communicator is try to introduce people to the species that live in prairies, because it's an amazing array of creatures and organisms that you know include things like parasitic plants and insects that pretend to be a different kind of insect or you know bees that sneak into the nests of other bees and lay their eggs there so they don't have to take care of the babies you know, all kinds of camouflage strategies and predatory strategies and parasitoids that attack each other by laying their eggs on the on different, I mean, all, it's all these stories that are always playing out in prairies. And I think that complexity and the diversity both make prairies interesting, but also make them what they are and keep them resilient. And it's the, the diversity of all those species, all the roles they play, some, some redundancy between that to the point where if one species has a rough year, there's other species that can fill in that, that role for the, at the time. And each of those species, no matter whether it's a, you know, a bird or a grasshopper or a plant or a bacteria, if you learn about that story, it's an amazing story. It just, it always is. And as a photographer, I see that all the time because I take pictures of something that I don't recognize send it to someone or get it identified in what way, you know, however I can. And then I start researching, okay, what is, what's, what's this thing do? You know, what's its life like? And every single time it's a fascinating story. So 
I think that's the first thing with prairies is that they provide that to the world. They are that. That's a really intrinsic, important thing about prairies. In addition, they also, you know, are huge banks of carbon storage. They filter water. They feed livestock, which feeds, you know, huge numbers of people. They provide us places to go out and, and enjoy nature, enjoy space and, and aesthetics. So all of those things are also important, but I just think the most important thing is that they house incredible array of amazing species. And as evidence of that incredible array of amazing species that they house, let's talk about your one square meter project. So the blog that I write, The Prairie Ecologist, I feel often like a preacher because I'm I'm sharing the same messages over and over and trying to find new ways to do it, right? So one of the big messages that I talk about in, in the blog and just in other ways is that prairies are fascinating at that large scale. The expansiveness of prairies is impressive, but there is that second piece of prairies and you can find the second piece anywhere. So if, if you live in a town that has a little patch of prairie habitat, you know, in town or on the edge of town or near town, or even if you have a, a you know, a backyard garden or a local park that has some native prairie plants planted, there's an incredible diversity of species that are associated with that little patch. And I think it's really important to recognize that because it makes prairies much more accessible. You don't have to drive out to, you know, Western Nebraska or Wyoming or South Dakota, where there's, you know, a place like Custer State Park, where you can see bison and prairie dogs. I mean, that is really cool and everybody should do it, but you don't have to do that to experience a prairie. And so I came up with an idea that, you know, well, I always talk about how diverse prairies are at a small scale. And I collect a lot of data with a square meter plot frame where I'll go out and walk around a prairie with a square meter plot. I, I plop it down. I list the number of plant species that are in there. And then I walk over and do it again. And I do that a bunch of times. I became really aware of what happens or how much is, is can be found within that little space. And I thought, well, maybe I should show that to other people. So in January, 2018, I went out and I put four yellow flags in the ground, in a little prairie on the edge of Aurora, Nebraska, where I live. And the strip of prairie I was working in was really small. It was kind of sandwiched between a row of trees and the local dog pound with a big mowed area around it. So definitely not a wilderness. If you're talking about wilderness as something separate from people, it was the mowed hiking trail that goes right through the middle of it. And I thought this is going to be a fun place because it's close to my house. It's easy to get to. And over the next year, whenever the light was good, I would look out the window and say, oh, it's time to go. And I would just skip across town with my camera and wander in there and sit down next to this little flagged square meter and just photograph everything I could find. And, and that included the species of insects and plants that I saw, but also just, you know, anything that caught my eye as a photographer. And I think that was a big part of the project. It wasn't just an inventory project, like here's how many species I found. That was part of it, but a lot of it really was, wow, there's a lot going on in prairies and it changes, right? It, it, that's the nice thing about doing this over the course of a year is that it did change. Every time I went, there was something new, something different, something worth photographing. And I think that is an important part of that story. And I hope helps people to you know, appreciate or be curious about little patches of prairie that might be close to them. The book is called Hidden Prairie, Photographing Life in One Square Meter. Now, Chris, you also wrote another book called The Ecology and Management of Prairies in the Central United States. It's a different kind of book, somewhat more comprehensive. Why did you write it? 
the original intent was there wasn't anything like that that was widely available. You know, there wasn't an easy way to find out about the ecology of prairies or more importantly about the management of prairies. There were little guides written for local areas, but nothing that was very comprehensive. And so I felt like I should at least take a crack at it. So that, that was the first intent. The second, I think, is that going back to that idea of the management of prairies is, is not only important, but it's inherent to prairies existing. I wanted to get away from the idea of management only in terms of rangeland production or livestock production. That's that's what most of the advice out there was, right? It was how to how to manage a pasture to you know get good weight gains on cattle or something like that. And to do that sustainably, but there was very little guidance out there if you were trying to focus on the biodiversity of a prairie. And one of the key differences is that with a lot of traditional rangeland management, the idea is to try to manage with cattle grazing, for example, so that every area of the ranch or every area of pasture gets used pretty evenly, right? You don't graze more over here and less over there. You want to get nice, even utilization of everything. And that's fine. But from an ecological standpoint, that's pretty boring. And it's also simplistic in the way that it simplifies the ecosystem because there are species that use all different kinds of habitats. And I think you know, if you look at a forest, it's easy to think about the canopy and sort of the, the sub canopy and the understory and the shrub layer and the herbaceous layer and the ground litter and all these different layers you can identify in a forest. But really, the reason it's easy to do that is because you're inside the forest. So if people don't have the benefit of understanding the complexity of the prairie, all they're going to see is grass. All those same kinds of layers exist. There is a canopy. There's a sub canopy. There's a, there's a you know, an intermediate layer of vegetation. And, and even more than that, if it's a prairie that's managed well for biodiversity, there are patches that have all kinds of different structure. There are patches that are tall and dense vegetation. There are patches that are really bare ground with very little vegetation. There are intermediate sort of status areas where, for example, with grazing, an area might get grazed really hard for a season. And those grasses that normally would grow three, four, six feet tall for the next year or two are not able to do very much because they're recovering from being grazed. And so they stay short and sort of sparse. And in the meantime, all these other plants get a chance to, to show themselves and, and to flourish until those dominant grasses return. And that creates a really interesting habitat structure in addition to being you know, an interesting plant community. Rather than having a patch of all short or a patch of all tall in, in a lot of prairies that are managed well, you can walk a handful of steps and step into all of those different habitat types. And that's all of those things combined. Are incredibly important because, again, every animal species has its own preferences for what kinds of habitat structure it does best in, and many of them need multiples. So if you're an animal that needs to thermoregulate, for example, if you're a snake or a, a toad or a grasshopper or something, there are times when you need to move out in the sun to warm up, and there's other times where you need to move into the shade to cool off, or you might move out into an open area because there's a lot of insects to feed on. But if a predator comes by or, you know, every once in a while, just because you're worried about a predator, you need to be able to just sneak over into the, the tall cover again to hide. And so having all that available within a prairie is incredibly important, but not something that was being talked about much or something that the guidance was out there in terms of how to create. So that was, that was really the biggest impetus for the book. Chris Helzer, Director of Science for the Nature Conservancy in Nebraska. Thank you for taking the time to talk with me. I'm going to share information about your books and your blog in the show notes, but before we close, I want to share one more quote. 
1819 and 1820, a botanist named Edwin James, who interestingly was from Vermont, where I live, joined the Stephen H. Long expedition to the Rocky Mountains. This expedition was different than other explorations of the continent, like the journey of Lewis and Clark, because it consisted almost entirely of scientists rather than military people. James was gobsmacked by the vastness and diversity of the content, and he had this to say about the prairie. Nothing is more difficult than to estimate by the eye the distance of objects seen on the plains. A small animal, as a wolf or turkey, sometimes appears of the magnitude of a horse on account of an erroneous impression of the distance. Three elk, which were the first we had seen, crossed our path at some distance before us. The effect of the mirage, together with our indefinite idea of the distance, magnified these animals to a most prodigious size. For a moment, we thought we saw the mastodon of America moving across those vast plains which seemed to have been created for his dwelling place. An animal seen for the first time, or any object with which the eye is unacquainted, usually appears much enlarged, and inaccurate ideas are formed of the magnitude and distance of all surrounding objects. But if some well-known animal, as a deer or a wolf, comes into the field of vision so near as to be recognized, the illusions vanish and all things return to their proper dimensions. Hey, thanks for dropping by. I'm Steve Shepard, the host of the Natural Curiosity Project, where we're committed to the idea that curiosity leads to discovery, discovery leads to knowledge, knowledge leads to insight, and insight leads to understanding. In every episode, we explore some topic that piqued our curiosity enough to make us want to share it with you. I hope you enjoy the journey. And if you did, I'd appreciate it if you'd leave a comment over at iTunes or SoundCloud, wherever you listen to the podcast. Thank you very much. We'll see you in the next episode.